Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano in this post-Christmas, pre-New Year's episode. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing great, David. Merry Christmas. Belated Merry Christmas to you and to all of our listeners. And yes, happy Merry New Christmas. Year. Happy, happy holidays of, of various kinds that people are celebrating. This, right. David, if I can say, these days, the Swedes have a word for this period called Melodargana, the middle days. And it's a perfect description for that period between Christmas and New Year's when you've lost track of what day it is. Especially now that we're locked down again. And, <laughs> so and I was thinking like, <laughs> that seems like 2020 generally. I've lost <laughs> track true. of what day it is. Well, the whole year has been Melandargan, but with much less fun, uh, really. But but we're in Melandargan now, and it's a it's a good time. I like Melandargan. Okay. Well, you know, we are in lockdown, so it does seem like the, the sort of period when everything is closed is going to extend uh, beyond Hogman. Uh, so... Yes. Anyway, uh, we are now entering the final uh, weeks of the, the Trump presidency, and uh, it seems as if, to one degree or another, the president has checked out from doing many of the presidency kind of things, like uh, dealing with major problems facing the country, whether that pandemic, paying much attention to the legislative process, except the last minute where he's scuttle major pieces of legislation before deciding at the last minute to sign them. Uh, and so I think this is a good opportunity to think about the, the presidency more broadly, what Trump has done with it. Is it, is, is it broken? And what, if anything, can be done to fix it going forward? Uh, so Frank, let's talk about sort of the state of the presidency as it is now. What are some of the, the signs that the presidency is, may not be working as designed or may not be working? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an important distinction we'll need to draw over the course of this conversation, David, between mm. the presidency... And the Trump presidency. <laughs> and the reason for that is, you know, you, you've, you've alluded to President Trump's erratic behavior just in the past few weeks. And really since the election where he effectively has given up governing except for the, the 2016 election or the 2020 election. Well, <laughs> Yes, the 2020 election in particular, but but you know, apart from indulging in in um, conspiracy theories about and 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 encouraging conspiracy theories about the election, or using his pardoning power, which we might well mm. talk about, um, to some very ill effect, in my view, uh, he hasn't done a whole lot. He basically has has checked out from doing the job. I mean, he's 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 got senioritis <laughs> to some extent. Um, and that's talking about seniors in high school and college, not not, not senior citizens. Um, yeah. But 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 uh, he he's he's not doing the job, and and so to some extent there there's a Trumpian aspect or a Trump aspect to this. But I think there's a larger question to be asked about the presidency and the evolution of the presidency, really since the Second World War, and I would say since since. Um, particularly with the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. And this is something we've talked about in different contexts over the mm. course of the podcast before. I think the presidency has acquired much greater powers than the framers of the Constitution, which invested it with significant power ever envisioned. And I think there's an imbalance, a constitutional imbalance in the United States. And so I think that's an issue. And Trump has called all of this into relief, not because of his overreach necessarily, but because of his underreach in the sense that he's just lazy mm. and hasn't been and not terribly competent and hasn't been following through on things, except for the particular things he's interested in, uh, which are actually relatively limited uh, in scope. Uh, I'm not sure. So my thesis today, I guess, is that the pre it's not that the presidency is broken. I actually think Congress is broken and mm. Congress doesn't exercise its oversight of the president. And thus we've had the presidency emerge as this kind of all powerful institution. And Trump's incompetence has just kind of uh, cast light on that. What, what do you think of that as a thesis? 
Uh, I think you're right that, that, that Congress has as its share of the blame for the particular political problems of today in terms of its, uh, this, the way Congress functions or doesn't function. I mean, Congress at the moment seems largely incapable of, of, of meeting the, the needs of the American people in a responsible and timely manner. Uh, you know, the legislative process has always been very convoluted in the United States. That's by design, but I think it's um, the partisanship of the particular moment and the inability of, of Congress to, to do both the legislative process and to do the oversight process, particularly glaring in the past, past 20 years. Um, you know, I think there's some bigger structural problems about sort of American politics generally, though I think that, that, that need to be fixed and the presidency is a part of that, but I think the presidency is a big part of that. Fixing the presidency needs to be part of a bigger package of reform if, if politics are going to be responsive to, to both the desires of the people and the needs of more so than it is. So I, I, the sense I'm getting, and we uh, have prepared even less than usual for this one because of the holidays, <laughs> uh, is that I... Again, I'm not here to talk about how wonderful the presidency is, is, is mm. as an institution, but I sense that you think it's more broken than I do. So defend that as a thesis. Um, well, okay. So the, the, right now, I, I see there, there's, there's four or five areas in which the presidency is, is broken. Um, one is uh, with regards, I mean, we can sort of get to the specifics of it, I guess, uh, let's go through this. Um, but the presidency has taken on a, a, a sort of a legislative role in a way that was never designed to. Uh, the, the, the methods of executive action, whether those are, are executive orders or other kinds of, of policy implementation by the, the executive brand for political ends, has been reached a point on, under President Trump, whether that's the, the Muslim ban or you know, building the, the wall or these other measures he's taken without any real... Uh, direction from Congress, which is supposed to be in charge of, of making laws and creating policy, um, has reached a point where it's not quite monarchical, but getting pretty close, uh, or at least it's getting arbitrary and capricious. Um, there is very little oversight of the presidency, and I think that's both uh, Congress not doing its job, but also the Justice Department feeling like it can't do its job. Uh, you know, this idea that the president is exempt from things like the Hatch Act, uh, which prohibits members of people in the executive branch from engaging in active politics, which applies to everybody in, in the executive branch, except for the president and the vice president seems bizarre. And we've seen president Trump use the white house for campaign events, which, you know, were, were, was not supposed to happen and use other kinds of, of federal property. Um, the justice department memorandum from 1973 that prohibits the president from being indicted. I think that's fundamentally problematic that the president can commit crimes and have uh, no threat of penalty, uh, at least while uh, he or she is, you know, and the kinds of corruption we've seen really throughout the Trump presidency, I think is indicative of the fact that, that he feels um, very little responsibility towards the rule of law or even ever any understanding of what the rule of law is and the, the sense that the United States should be a country in which law applies equally to all people, regardless of whether they are rich or poor or powerful or not, to occur to him. Um, what's your hypothesis that the, the presidency is not broken? I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say it's not broken, but what I would say is these things, the, the examples you gave, mm. um, all illustrate the incompetence and, frankly, um, malfeasance of President Trump and his administration. But these executive orders 
go further back, go go oh, back much sure. further than President Trump. So, so President Obama, um, who many people and I suspect many of our listeners admire much more than they admire President Trump, and I suspect that includes us. Yeah, it it, it does. Yes. <laughs> you know, he used executive orders a lot. Now he also believed in responsible government and put competent people in charge of agencies, but people of a different political predilection than, than, than ours would, would still say, well, those, that use of executive orders was equally um, pernicious. Now, President Obama used executive orders because he had a Congress for most of his presidency, a Congress that he couldn't work with because Congress wouldn't work with him, especially mm. Mitch McConnell. And so I think President Trump faced similar constraints I don't think he, President Trump is not a deep kind of constitutional theorist. I think he did what he could get away with. And I, th- I agree with you that I think a, a unique feature of the Trump presidency uh, has been his effort, have been his efforts to undermine the Justice Department and to, to weaken the Justice Department's oversight of the presidency. He's always seen the Justice Department as his personal lawyers and his personal police force, uh, which is not how the Justice Department is meant to function, and frankly, is not how the Justice Department has functioned historically. But setting that aside, and that's a pretty big caveat, I acknowledge, I'm not sure, apart from um, the selfishness, incompetence, and corruption, (laughs) that that (laughs) President Trump's style of governance in terms of relying on on executive orders is all that different than President Obama's. Now, that's testimony to the brokenness of the system. Mm. But again, I think that's because Congress neither works with the president, especially when he, and eventually she, is of a different party um, on legislative matters. So there's never, you know, the caucuses don't come together to reach a reasonable compromise on on legislation anymore. I think there's a tendency to see the good old days as always the good old days. And I think there are problems historically, and you can talk about the failure of Congress in the 1850s. Um, but I think there was once a time when when the government functioned better than it now does. And because of Congress's, I guess, the brokenness of Congress, the presidency has taken on these imperial or monarchical aspects. What we've had in the past four years is a mad king, if you will, that has finally exposed mm. the problems of this. But these problems or this tendency is much deeper seated than um, than Donald Trump. So, so, um, and it's worked so, so reasonably do we need to fix well. Congress first, then. Yes, I think Congress is more fixable. Do we need to than fix the Congress first. Yes. Okay, so how do we fix Congress? Well, you get rid of the filibuster in the Senate, for one thing. Okay. Um, there's no reason the Senate can't become majoritarian. I think you make the Senate more representative of the. I mean, I'd get rid of the Senate if I could, but we're not getting rid of the Senate. We have to deal in the realm of the possible. So I think. Yeah, we, we add, act, 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 Yeah. You know, redistricting of states would be a start or adding states. Um, mm. So, you know, uh, we should consolidate the Dakotas. I know the Dakotas are dear to you, but they could be one state, not two. <laughs> um, you know, you could make D.C. a state. You could make Puerto Rico a state, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about some of these things o- over the mm. past few months. Um, I think those steps would go a long way towards helping to make the Senate more democratic and more reflective of the country. I would, as I said, eliminate the filibuster um, completely in the Senate. It's it's a, it's an ar- archaic artifact that has only almost ever been used, or almost always been used when it's been invoked to support white supremacy historically. So I, I don't see yeah. I don't see any kind of virtue in the filibuster. That's where I would start. What about you? So I think all those are good things, especially getting rid of the filibuster. Um, you know, the tricky thing with with some of these kinds of reforms, whether it's of the presidency or of 
Congress is is that you're you're dealing with constitutional amendments and those kinds of things. And and given how hard it is to pass a regular piece of legislation right now, many of the constitutions in the realm of the fantastic. I've been playing around with in my mind what would happen if we brought back earmarks and brought back more pork barrel spending, which largely disappeared about 15 years ago, uh, because that gives partisan politicians of, of of differing political ideas reasons to come together to uh, maybe endorse a bill that they're not 100% enthusiastic for because it has something very specific for their district. And it encourage, even though it encourages potentially wasteful spending, it does so um, in the spirit of getting people to talk to each other, which doesn't happen as much now as it used uh, this, you know, the sense of deal making that that used to happen in Congress doesn't happen as much anymore because uh, individual congressmen can't go back to the district and said, yes, I voted for that bill, which is a lousy bill, but I got us this new Bridge. hospital. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, you know, there are ways in which that system got abused in all kinds of ways. But if you look at the, you know, the era of American politics, uh, you know, when, in which pork barrel spending was robust, uh, it is tends to be a time in which the, the, Partisan tenor in Congress tends to be a little bit less pronounced than it is now, which isn't saying very much. But, um, you know, the sense that you can't really make a, a, a meaningful deal anymore uh, because you can't do pork barrel spending. I think that, man, I don't I have mixed feelings about that, but that seems to be one way in which you can make a very small change that could actually lead to a different kind of politics. Happening. I think that's really interesting, David, and, and, and many of our listeners, and I know you are familiar with the Slate Political Gab Fest, mm. um, the podcast, which is a very good podcast. It's been on for 15 years, I think. Mm. And David Plotz, who features on that, he's one of the, the hosts of that podcast, um, is in, I have to be careful. Not that it matters, but, uh, but he yeah, occasionally has ours, yes, <laughs> yes, he occasionally has these riffs where he basically talks about good graft or good corruption. And I think he's referring to things like this thing. Well, actually, this is a sign of a system that's working. And and so the elimination of pork barrel spending, as you say, mm-hmm. did eliminate legislation. The so a legislation therefore became a zero sum game, especially at a time when political partisanship became more acute and being seen to compromise with the other side was seen as a real kind of flaw, a kind of character flaw. And whereas the kind of horse trading and back scratching or pick, pick your, pick your metaphor Mm. that had to go on to get, get legislation passed by necessity brought people together and you got some very unusual friendships in Congress, in I'm really talking about in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that mm. and 80s that really kind of helped things along. Again, we can often romanticize these periods, and I, the, I, you know, I, I totally understand that. But legislation did get passed. I mean, I, one, one thing everybody can be certain of: I'm making one prediction about the Biden president. It's that the Republicans are going to de- are going to learn, relearn the virtues and appreciate the virtues of presidential oversight and balanced budgets again. They're suddenly going to be in favor <laughs> of those things. <laughs> Um, yes, there are balance of Baber balance budgets when there's a Democrat in the White House. I understand exactly. Um, uh, but 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 the kind of comp- legislative compromising that was necessary, and and we had presidents during that period who were either products of that system. I mean, LBJ's a case hmm. in point. Uh, but 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 also um, recognized that they had to work with the other party. Now, I think all the romanticism about. Um, Ronald Reagan having a weekly drink with Tip O'Neill is annoying. Uh, yeah, but 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 
it's got to be better than what we've seen in the recent past. Particularly, you know, President Obama tried that when he had, you know, played golf with John Boehner, but it didn't really go anywhere. But now it's unthinkable. President Trump, yeah, you know, the images of President Trump with Nancy Pelosi are, are toe cringing. Well, and, and I don't think the two of them have met in the past two years. Well, not, you know, certainly so not socially. Uh, well, but I mean, he, like I, my understanding is Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin to do the negotiating with Congress, which is weird. That's not the traditionally the Treasury Secretary's job. Uh, but neither uh, the president or the vice president is meeting regularly, or even if at all, with with Democratic leaders in the House or with the Senate. Um, a, a very big shift in in the kinds of ways in which legislation has been made. That the president has been a fairly active player in the in the legislative process going back, you know. It, Throughout the 20th century, in bits and pieces in the 19th, and and Trump, who who has advertised himself as the great deal maker, uh, has not actually been very involved in the negotiations of the deals. Um, interesting shift in, uh, I guess he did see a, a, a group in Congress that, that deals in the ways that he's more at the table. We would think that being at the table is. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could see a scenario um, where the the case for Trump four years ago, less so in 2020 but in 2016 was he's exactly what washington needs because of these kinds of problems he's a guy you know he wrote the allegedly wrote the art of the deal he understands how to negotiate this is exactly i mean this was part of his case in 2016 i will know how to negotiate with those people in washington i'll know how to negotiate internationally you know he'll be a breath of fresh air um mm. he didn't do those things because it turns out he was playing a role it wasn't actually a, he, he wasn't actually much of a deal maker as a businessman or hasn't been um you know this was a role this was an image crafted for reality television more than anything else but but that would have been the case for president trump but he as you say he, he demonstrated no interest in doing that let me let me i'm playing devil's advocate here but i've got a question for you so so let, let me spin this out a little bit and say look in in the world we currently live in where although the u.s's international um presence has been diminished considerably in the past four years, it's still incredibly all important, uh, or incredibly important, I should say. Uh, given that, and given the international demands on the president of the United States as the so-called, as the leader of the so-called free world and all that kind of thing, the, the pressures uh, that come with that role, you actually need a president who's quasi-monarchical, who can make decisions, who has the administrative state um, at, his, at his command, um, which we've seen, and that's how the role has evolved in the past 70, 75 years. And that's necessary in the, for the world we now live in. The kind of 18th century world where the presidency was designed, you know, the, the role was, is not fit for that, for, for, for its current purpose. And therefore it's evolved in, 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 in a necessary way. And the problem isn't the, the power we invest the presidency with. The problem in this case has been President Trump. So I'm slightly contradicting what I said earlier, but I, 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 I'm, yeah, yeah. If, if this is a seminar, I'm spinning that out. And then I have a follow-up question for you that's more historically based. Um, okay. So I think you're right. And part of the problem is this is an office that was designed in the late 18th century and that seemed to work pretty well in the late 18th century and most of the 19th century, uh, but that the political realities of the world, the structure of politics, the, the power of the United States uh, on the global stage, the ways in which the executive branch has grown, uh, has created the framework in which a monarchical kind of presidency seems to be uh, inevitable, uh, or at least as, as be, seems to be a logical outcome of those. That being said, I think that's uh, a, a sign that maybe we need to 
create massive reforms in the institution rather than sort of wash our hands that we need right now. Uh, that in, in that way lies uh, despot. Um, you know, it's a very big job for one person to do, you know, and in lots of countries, the executive function is divided between more than one person. You know, we can think about countries like Germany or France in which, you know, the, the executive is split between somebody who's either in charge of domestic stuff and somebody else is in charge of foreign affairs or somebody's in charge of being the sort of political head of the country and somebody else does the administrative stuff. Um, you know, one could envision a way in which we could either sort of jerry-rig the current system to divide up the responsibilities a bit more um, or, or actually sort of start from scratch, which may, may be a better plan. Uh, but I think you know, you're right in diagnosing that, that there's a, uh, this has been a, tra 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 trajectory for the past at least, especially the past 50 years, but, but really for the past century of, of, of more and more power accumulating in the hands of the president without uh, meaningful constraints upon it. So what's your right, historical you follow-up? No, 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 no. I, I actually want to push you on this because you, like a student in seminar, gave me an answer, but it wasn't actually an answer <laughs> to the question I posed. <laughs> so, so you, you I'm a politician. I'm giving you the answer to the question I wanted to answer. <laughs> You've restated the problem, but not answered the question, which is, is this necessarily a bad thing? Yes, it's a vast job, I accept. And one other example, which you didn't cite, and I'm surprised because you've recently become a UK citizen, is in the UK, of course, we have a, you know, the, the monarch serves as the head of state at ceremonial functions, and the prime minister has those executive powers. You know, so we could make Dolly Parton our queen, and therefore, and <laughs> who, could, who could be the head of state, and then the president could deal with um, other things. But, 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 uh, but I want to press you before I get to the historical question, which is, you know, is this, I mean, the British Constitution is a good example. The British Constitution's virtue is it has evolved over time in response to circumstances. One of, and, and the United States has a written constitution in opposition to that quite self-consciously. They said, okay, the British constitution is fine as far as it goes, but because it's not written down, that's where the confusion mm. arises. So therefore we're going to write everything down and we're going to have a clear kind of set of rules that everybody agrees with. That was the basis for the, the formation of the United States constitution. Mm. And that makes sense in theory. One of the virtues of the British constitution is it's adaptability and pliability. And so what we've seen is the presidencies evolved kind of in a British style in the sense that these, the, the constitution has changed form in the past 200 plus years. Um, and maybe, I'm, I'm, again, I'm making, the, let's take Trump out of the equation. Let's assume it's 2010 again, and we all love Obama and say, well, you know, <laughs> That's the way it's got to be because that's that's fit for purpose in the modern world. Mm. And and because what you've described is true. Do we need constitutional reform? Yes. Are we going to get constitutional reform or or a new constitution? No. Mm. no. So therefore, but but maybe the presidency, let's again take Trump out of the equation, has evolved in the way it has to evolve because governing and is much more complex today than it was in 1789. The demands on the job are much more complex. And frankly, the world is a much more dangerous place. And the United States plays a central role in as a kind of cornerstone of, of global unity. And we've seen what happens when it doesn't in the past four years, you know, mm. when it abdicates that role. And it's just too important to what, well, we might be unhappy with aspects of this. And if you're a civil libertarian, you should certainly be unhappy with it. It's the way it's got to be. So that's my question to you that, that you know, basically, you know, like well, it or so, lump it, David. <laughs> yeah. So well, one thing I've been thinking about a lot recently uh, is about sort of the, the reforms that were made to, uh, 
the presidency particularly, but politics more generally in the aftermath of of Watergate, because in between you know 1974 period, there's a whole series of reforms that are made. Uh, ones that are both targeting specifically the the problems of the Nixon administration, but also some real reflection that happened about sort of the corruption within politics, both sort of explicit corruption, but also the sort of corrupting. And there's all kinds of ethics rules put into place. There's a campaign finance things put into place. There's financial disclosure requirements. Uh, there's expansions to the Freedom of Information Act. There's controls upon the the role of of intelligence agencies, both. Uh, uh, foreign and domestic intelligence agents, their creations of inspector generals, and on and on and on, War Powers Act, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been thinking about, about are we likely to have a moment like that soon? And I'm hopeful that we will, but I'm not sure because I don't think we have the kind of legislative will to do that. Uh, you know, one of the things that happened in the aftermath of, of, of Watergate is you did have a, a moment of real pushback against the sort of Nixon model of the presidency. You had a, a, a lots of Republicans getting swept out of office um, and, and a, you know, a moment where that could, those kinds of things. Biden doesn't seem to have any coattails in this election. A forecast for what Congress is going to look like for the next two years uh, is going to be more of the force that. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, how effective were those reforms from the late 1970s into actually changing politics and, and fixing the things that they were trying to fix, both in the short term and in the long term. And I'm not sure actually how effective in, in retrospect they were. They were pretty meaningful in terms of, uh, you know, taking a, a real proactive stance against uh, uh, excesses of the Nixon era. But, you know, if you sort of look through the, the kinds of reforms they made, most of them are kind of dead letters now. Looking at the War Powers Act, the War Powers Act has never really panned out as a meaningful constraint upon executive use of military power. So, you know, the United States has gotten involved in all kinds of since then with very little things like campaign finance reform, which were a huge part of the post Watergate uh, set of in part because of the, the you know, all of those have, have either been undermined by Congress or thrown out by the courts. So we don't really have any meaningful a lot of the ethics rules, people have found ways around, or you know, if they haven't found ways around them, there's been very little effort to actually uh, enforce those kinds of rules. One of the choices they made in the 1970s about ethics rules is that, that the penalties for them would be civil penalties and not criminal penalties. If a congressman is found in violation of the ethics rules, well, he pays a fine and keeps going. Um, and the same is true for people in the executive branch. Um, what do you th I mean, uh, looking back on this period, you know, 50 years later, do you think that those reforms have actually done much of anything to, to curtail the, at least uh, uh, the long term, curtail the kind of problems that we saw back in the Nixon administration? So I'm seeing lots of repeats in terms of the kinds of issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. Uh, in my optimistic moments, and I, uh, and I know this is something we've discussed on the podcast before, mm. uh, you know, one of the things I've said is, you know, Nixon was followed by reform. The, the egregious corruption of the 1890s or the 1880s and 90s was followed by the progressive era. And, and I think we might be on the cusp of a wave of reform now. And I don't think you can see it when you're in it necessarily. Uh, and so I'm still optimistic that there might be a change. I guess what I would say in response to your particular question is mm. it's not necessarily those requirements themselves. And I agree with you that they've become rather toothless in the past 20 years, especially the past five. Uh, 
as much as the culture that produces them. So the fact hmm. that Congress is committed to these kind of reforms, the fact that people say you can't invade Nicaragua without invoking the War Powers Act, uh, it's the norms. And we've spent a lot of time in the past four years talking about norms. I think it's the norms that those those um, restrictions, restrictions and laws represent that are almost as important as the legislation itself. And I think those norms did work probably for 25 or 30 years, and then we've seen their gradual erosion and smash, the smashing of them in the past four years. Um, but that's not to say we won't get new norms as a result of new, uh, a new moment of reform. I agree with you. I think if, if the Democrats had won, you know, they lost seats in the House and the Senate's a toss-up. You know, the Democrats might win those two seats in Georgia. I suspect they're not going to on January 5th, but if they do, that might make it. But even if they do, it's going to be a 50-50 split in the Senate. It's not going to be a clear majority. Um, it's going to be difficult to enact reforms, but we don't know where we are four years from now or mm. eight years from now. And 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 so the, reform, the, 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 the moment of reform might take some time to come because what could happen is, I, and indeed, I think we're looking at probably governmental inertia for the next four years, or at least the next two years, because of the, the because of Congress, is people will really get fed up and say, "Well, hold on, Joe Biden won by seven million votes and still couldn't do anything. What's wrong with him?" So, I, I but I agree with you. But I think it's the norms that those laws represent that have hmm. eroded as much as the laws themselves. But they did work for a while. I mean, I think there was, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was governmental oversight um, or congressional oversight or greater congressional oversight of the executive than we've seen in the past. My historic question for you is, if, if we accept your premise, and I basically do, that the presidency is broken, has it been broken in the past, apart from Nixon? I mean, Nixon's yeah, the obvious choice. But, choice, but, right. But you know, if we you know, we're meant to take a long view here, it's been it wasn't that important in the mid nineteenth century. It was, it was more prime ministerial um, for, for well, except uh, for that little sorry in the nineteenth century your, rather. Yeah, yeah, but but well, I me mean, except I mean I think the the Andrew Johnson presidency was broken, you know, in which he's active subverting the will of the president. Broken, looking at the raw, you know, the president didn't have as much power as it. You know, even if it wasn't the person occupying the office wasn't particularly competent. You know, the job for the most part was, was one that could administered by a moderately incompetent person without a huge amount of, of detriment. Supercharging of the president, you know, amplifies whatever characteristics the occupant tends to have in, in pretty profound ways. That's well said. Um, all right, Frank, let's imagine you're Nancy Pelosi and and you're wanting to make some reforms in 2021 to to fix the presidency or fix politics more generally. Where would you start? Well, a really simple thing that could be done would be uh, re requiring presidential candidates to uh, release their tax returns for, I don't know, 10, 20 years. You know, pick, pick the figure. But, you know, th this was something that was a norm that President Trump smashed. And mm. it's become quite clear from what we have been able to learn. You know, the reporting of The New York Times about his tax returns was very revealing. But that, that you know, Trump's uh, financial ties to some dubious entities around the world undoubtedly influenced his policies. And it seems to me that that uh, it would be very relatively easy to require that major, not major party, all presidential candidates, anybody who's on the ballot to run for the presidency, release their tax returns. I think that would be a relatively simple matter. It should be a nonpartisan matter. Um, I think this is would be good for us to know about any candidates. And, and that, you know, for a start, that would be a pretty simple uh, reform.
Yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, the Republicans would undoubtedly see that as an attack on Trump, particularly. But you know, uh, I think you're right that that would be an important change, and one could be made at, at the national level or it could be made at the state level. One can imagine a state um, requiring that of people on the ballot in their state, in New Hampshire, to compete in the primary. Do that, that having a. Uh, the second thing I think is we would need to. Um, I think it would be possible to to uh, take steps to ensure the autonomy and integrity of the Justice Department. I mean, I think mm-hmm. of all the the kind of problems of the Trump presidency, his attempts to undermine the Justice Department uh, have been the most uh, are potentially the most pernicious. And I think that steps would need to be take, taken to, to uh, protect future attorneys general. Um, from overreach by by the president, because you have a kind of dilemma here where the Justice Department falls within the executive branch, but it's also responsible for oversight of the uh, within the executive branch. And although other presidents have pushed the boundary there occasionally or blurred the boundary, um, nobody's done what Trump has done, and we need to restore the authority of the Attorney General. I think. What about you? Oh, I think those are both really good proposals. Um, I think we need a new Voting Rights Act. Yep. Um, you know. The courts gutted the the one the one we had from 1965, but I think we need a, a new one, one that that not only sort of puts in the protections that were in the old one that got killed, uh, but one that that you know clarifies questions about voter IDs across the country, uh, one that encourages uh, enables ex felons to be able to vote, one that sort of makes voting a right that's guaranteed, that access the ballot encouraged. Getting Republicans to the table for that would be difficult, but I think there's ways in which you can link those things with questions about ballot security, if that's what Republicans are concerned about, to make it much easier for people to vote uh, and than it is, and, and give people more confidence that uh, the votes that they cast are going to count and, and more confident in the results of the election process and attach money to that, you know, give states federal money to make sure that that there is you know uh, uh, open and fair processes to 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 make voting happen in in ways that are are transparent and are consistent or at least more consistent across the country so there's rationales for having elections work differently every place you know federalism whatever uh, but we shouldn't have a system in which the voting from state to state you know enfranchises some people and disenfranchises disenfranchises other people there's no uh, good argument for that um, I think the, and this is especially true the past few weeks, I think we need to figure out new ways to put constraints in the pardon power. And I'm not sure whether legislatively that's possible. I don't know whether the constitution granting of pardon power to the presidency is uh, limitless, uh, but I think it, there should be limits on it, especially pardoning people where it's, uh, where there seems to be a, a, a quid pro quo with, with the pardoning uh, of people who are uh, potentially going to, people who would, might Testifies the president for his or her crime seems to be some of the case with some of the, the recent pardon. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether you have any thoughts about whether that can be done without amending the Constitution. It seems like that might be a bit tricky, uh, but there might be a, a legislative workaround. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, um, but I would agree with the sentiment behind your comment. And and again, this is one where the norms had worked pretty well in the past. You know, there have been some pardons where you where people thought, oh, that doesn't look very good. But that 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 kind of worry about what people think and how it would appear was the major constraint. I mean, there were some problems with um, George H. W. Mm. Bush pardoning the people who might have been, or so it is said, might have been able to implicate him in the Iran Contra 
matter, but that's small beer compared to what we've been dealing with in the past few weeks and the potential of the next few weeks where President Trump might pardon his own children and Rudy Giuliani, et cetera, et cetera. So some kind of um, maybe what they could do, because the Constitution doesn't say much about the pardon power, and it appears to give not quite absolute pardon power to the president, but pretty close to it. But there might be practical constraints that could be put on it in terms of uh, you know, tying the pardon power or the budget to the Justice Department to the exercise of the pardon power or something, mm. something like that. There might be a kind of practical constraint that could be placed on it without a constitutional amendment because a constitutional amendment might be very, very difficult indeed. Uh, that hasn't been much of an issue, the pardon power, really, until the moment we're now in. And it would be interesting to see whether... You know, six months, two years or four years from now, people have a different view of the pardon power once they've been able to see this play out. Because Trump, if Trump, as seems likely, overplays his hand on that one, um, well, one can argue he's already done so, um, given given some of the egregious pardons of the past week. Uh, so, yeah, I think some reform of that might be possible if it's tied to administrative matter. So, as I said, I think the Justice Department is the obvious way to, to try and do that. So it could be tied up in a package of things going back to protecting the attorney general and the and the justice department that, that that it could be part of that package of reforms but i'm neither a lawyer nor a constitutional expert so it, it's difficult for me to offer much more than that as an observation um i also wouldn't mind if congress specified what high crimes and misdemeanors were because mm. it's one of the things that strikes me right now is, is that the constraint has opened you know the way we always have taught about what's the constraint upon the presidency the constraints are the threat of impeachment. And we've now had, you know, three presidents impeached, none removed from office, one guy resigned. And one can make an argument that in all three cases where the person got impeached, especially in, in the Trump case and in the Andrew Johnson case, the person should have been removed from office. Um, and when looking forward, I don't see the impeachment power as having much teeth in terms of actually threatening a president. You know, if they behave themselves well enough and have enough people in Congress, uh, that threat seems to be a, a, an empty one. I think actually the, the system might be better off if we actually, the Congress actually kicked a few presidents out of office. Right, well, this century. is, yeah, we're back to my argument that it's, Congress is more broken than the presidency. The president, yeah. you, know, you know, there was a mechanism to deal with Trump. He was impeached this impeached. year. It's hard yeah. to believe <laughs> exactly that. This year. You know, they could have removed him from office. The mechanism is there. This isn't the fault of the framers of the Constitution. Hmm. It's the fault of the people who were in the Senate in January and February of this year, they could have removed him from office for what would seem to be pretty egregious misdeeds. They chose not to do so. So, and, and the reasons for that are political and partisan and everything else, but it, it's quite clear that, that um, you know, the mechanism was there and they did not avail themselves of. So again, I think Congress is the problem here, not, or the Senate in this case, not, not necessarily, uh, Trump is Trump. He's never going to change. Right? <laughs> you know, the, the people yeah. who, had, who had the option to do something about it chose not to. You know, one wonders, though, whether the Constitution sets the right benchmark and the right threshold for removal. Um, and I understand that the apprehension about not removing a person who was duly elected by the people on capricious ground. Uh, but removing a president is very, very hard. Um, and it may be that they made the bar a little bit too high. Yeah, I mean, this is where um, precedent matters. We're back to the British Constitution, mm -hmm. constitutional model here. So the precedent established with Andrew Johnson was a very, very high bar. And I think that protected Presidents Clinton and especially Trump subsequently. Um, 
had the bar been set a little bit lower, maybe impeachment would have become a little bit like having a vote of no confidence in a parliamentary system where the government falls. Um, yeah. and, and that we don't want it to be as easy as that necessarily, given that the people express their popular will every four years, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but maybe it's a little too hard. Uh, the, the bar is a little too high now. But mm. again, constitutions, even written constitutions evolve in light of experience and practice. So maybe the practice will change. We, I mean, we could be facing a, a situation in the future where any time a president doesn't have a, have a majority in Congress, he or she is going to get impeached because the, op- the opposition will just do it. Sure. Uh, and may, and who, know, who knows what, what, di- what direction that will take us. On one hand, that seems like a recipe for political chaos, but maybe it lowers the bar and changes political behavior as a consequence. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think would be helpful here um, is if Congress spent the time, obviously Congress has a lot to do, uh, and has a hard enough time doing the things they absolutely need to <laughs> does do. It, does it really? <laughs> it doesn't seem to do anything. <laughs> it doesn't seem to do anything, but it seems to be very busy not doing anything. Um, but every time we have an impeachment, and we obviously haven't had very many, people scramble at the moment of political crisis to say, how the hell does this work? What's the process? What exactly is the standard when it's always you know, at the moment which you are asking, like, okay, what's both what is the standard and how do we apply the standard to this particular situation? It'd be great if when we're not in an impeachment crisis, they actually spent some time to say, let us now articulate in at least some words what a high crime misdemeanor is and what the procedures will be going forward. So the next time this happens, we don't have to say, what the hell did we do in you know the 1860s? Because right. yeah, um, I mean that's what happened with the, with with the Clinton impeachment. Is they had to go back and look and say like, what the hell did we do a century and a half ago? And and that's not. Uh, and then what exactly is a high crime misdemeanor? Which the hell that is over and over again to what that meant in the 18th century. Having those procedures in place could be be helpful. It's like trying to read the instructions on the fire extinguisher <laughs> getting ready to put out the fire. Fire. That's a very good metaphor. Yes. Um, um, yeah. So, so I think I, I think uh, clarification on high crimes and misdemeanors, and that is something that could be done. Well, uh, doing it legislatively, the problem with that is anything that you don't define as a high crime or misdemeanor might might cause some problems. But having trying to reach some sort of consensus on that would be would be very helpful i agree with you so that we and that might protect us from spurious impeachments mm. um yeah i think that would be a that would be a useful reform yeah i don't i don't see that being on the agenda in 2021 but yeah one can hope maybe we can draft it and send it up to congress once we, let's see if they listen i'm sure right, they're I, waiting david i'm sure they're exactly, waiting to hear from yeah, us <laughs> There have been times in which which academics gave suggestions to Congress and they listened. It's been a while, but uh, actually, no. I mean, the the the, the Consumer Protection Act you know, came from an academic. Um, right. Time for last drops, Frank. What have we got? I've I've got two things I want to mention, David. I want to give a shout out to uh, one of our listeners, Ewan, who got in touch uh, with us yesterday to thank us for the podcast and to thank him for listening, but more generally to thank yes. all of our listeners um near and far for 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 listening as the year draws to an end we really appreciate you uh tuning in to listen to the rantings of two lunatics so that's uh really uh (laughs) much appreciated um and and my second one is and this is something (laughs) this is uh my my second uh consecutive last drop related to baseball but the um major league baseball has just uh acknowledged that the players who played in the so-called Negro Leagues between 1920 and 1950 
were major league players. And the reason this hmm. is important is, um, for, well, for a number of reasons. Uh, most importantly, it means that baseball's records, which are really, really important to people who follow baseball, are going to change because thousands and thousands of, of players who previously um, been excluded from things like the baseball encyclopedia and its successors uh, will now be included and those statistics will be included so one of the all-time great players Willie Mays will have 13 more hits I think it is because he got 13 hits during a very brief stint in the Negro Leagues before he played in what were then the just integrated and and formally recognized major league so this is a this is actually quite important for historians of baseball I think it's important for historians cultural historians of the United States actually because one of the things we see with the history of the Negro Leagues you know between roughly 1920 and 1950 is the emergence of an autonomous black cultural life which i mean had obviously gone on for for centuries mm. before but this was one particular manifestation of it and and integration of baseball which began in 1947 also signaled the end of that um and and this is a kind of recognition of what went before in in really really significant ways it's also a tribute to all the the researchers many of whom have done really painstaking work looking at old newspapers and, and particularly black newspapers in, in various cities of the United States, uh, black published newspapers to recover this data. So the data mm. is going to be continually changing. But for the past 50 years, really, a number of, of uh, researchers, often amateurs, have, have done really painstaking work to create the database, the data set upon which these, the, the records are going to be uh, corrected. Uh, and expanded in, in the coming years. And I think this is quite an exciting moment. It's a tribute to those researchers. It's a tribute to those players who were excluded from what were then denominated the, the, the major leagues. Um, and it's a, it's a correction of the historical record. And it's quite exciting. Ted Williams, for example, will not be the last person to have uh, hit 400. I was Josh Gibson hit 400. Um, oh, wow. Um, in, in, and, and so um, it, the, the record is going to change and I think that's really good so um, I think this was I, I think we, the Major League Baseball kind of bent over the kind of almost gave itself whiplash patting itself on the back for making this decision and I don't I think we should give them one one cheer maybe rather than two or three because you, you don't get approval for excluding people and then mm. 80 years later saying well we're including them aren't we aren't we wonderful in speaking at this moment but it is seeking to redress yeah. in a small way a historic injustice and it's a good thing well and it's not only 80 years later it's you know also 50 years later because they you know one of the things they're correcting was a decision made in the early 1970s where they were deciding which of the various leagues uh, were major leagues and they decided that the Union League and the Federal League and the right, Players League right. were, were majors in America, but not the Negro Leagues back in. That's right. One of, one of the things that's come out, um, which I guess lots of people knew, but I wasn't as 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 familiar with, was how many you know, the, the way the schedules work for the Negro League teams in the in the um, especially in the in the 30s and early 40s, where they would play. Yeah, their seasons were very short. Yeah, usually you know, about 50 play, games. Yes, and some of them were even you know less than that because they would spend most of their time actually barnstorming, playing against local amateurs, and so actually sort of disaggregating which of these are our actual Negro League games versus which of these are barnstorming games. So is actually going to be a methodological issue they're going to have to sort of work through as they try to figure out how many home runs Josh Gibson that's uh, right you know stolen bases, cool Papa Bell had or something right. But uh, that's a definitely an, an over. Uh, a, 
you know, this is taking far too long to make that recognition, but but that's a good move on Major League Baseball's part uh, today. Yes. What's your last drop, David? Uh, well, uh, I just want to point people to a, a profile of the historian Heather Cox Richardson uh, in the New York Times. We've talked about uh, her work on the podcast before. She has previously been a podcaster, which we have stopped doing, but she does a, uh, a daily email drop, which both of us subscribe to. If you don't subscribe to it, uh, definitely take a look at it because you know, uh, at least I get the first thing every morning yep. where she's trying to put do in some ways much the same kinds of things that we're doing although she's more eloquent than we are uh, at least more eloquent than I am uh, trying to put the sort of day's news in some kind of political context and she's a you know historian uh, at, at Boston College she recently had a, a book come out uh, how the South won the Civil War which is a really uh, great and interesting read about uh, sort of how we get got to where we are today uh, but I just want to point to this profile of her in the, the New York Times. And it's good to see historians who are, are doing um, public facing work and gaining public recognition uh, in, in major uh, media outlets. So congratulations to her for that. Right. Good. Until next week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 